Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Leaders of the American Civil War. In this episode, we continue our discussion of General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Episode 30 ended with the Battle of Cedar Cedar Mountain, in which uh, Jackson once again defeated Union General Nathaniel Banks' corps, which was part a portion of the Union Army of Virginia. This episode is devoted to what followed, which would become known as Second Bull Run, or also Second Manassas. Now, Second Bull Run was a masterpiece of generalship on the part of Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and his two corps commanders, Jackson and Longstreet. Lee would somehow sneak his entire army around the Blue Ridge Mountain passes and behind Union lines. Then he would draw Pope's much larger Union army into a deadly trap. This trap was made up of Jackson and Longstreet's respective corps, formed into the shape into a shape that resembled, resembled the jaws of a T-Rex. And as you might expect a T-Rex to do, Lee crushed Pope's army. Now, just how that came to happen is just as interesting and exciting as the final result. First, let's step back a bit and talk about the big picture. Things in the war were going much better for the Union in the West than they were in the East. General Henry Halleck was in charge of the westernmost forces at the time, so Washington thought he must have had he must have been the magic formula for what was going well in the West. So President Lincoln promoted Halleck to the commanding general of all Union armies, thinking he would bring uh, some of his magic back over to the Eastern Theater. Halleck was a brilliant administrator and a great intellectual mind, but just like McClellan, he was not a fighter. Lincoln and the rest of the world would eventually find out the magic formula in the West was not Halleck, but instead was U.S. Grant. Gideon Wells wrote of Halleck that he, quote, originates nothing, anticipates nothing, takes no responsibility, plans nothing, suggests nothing, is good for nothing, unquote. Lincoln determined he was, quote, little more than a first-rate clerk, end quote. Okay, we, we could go on flogging Halleck all day, but enough of that. Meanwhile, hoping for even more Union magic from the West... John Pope was promoted to commander of the Union Army of Virginia. Pope was a brash commander who had successfully captured Island Number 10 on the Mississippi River, and on the basis of this success, Halleck brought this cocky and overconfident Pope east to take over the newly formed Army of Virginia. Halleck hoped Pope might shore up uh, some very shaky leadership in the Union Army, But as we will find out soon, Pope's leadership was not an improvement. The fact was that Pope was universally disliked by his own men and especially by the Confederates. Lee and all Virginians particularly despised Pope because of his treatment of the northern Virginia territory his army was occupying. Lee even called Pope a miscreant, which is strong language for Lee, and declared that he, quote, must be suppressed, end quote. Pope's own men despised him also because of his constant bluster and because he stated the Union forces in the East had lacked the fighting spirit of the Western armies. 
Now, Pope had assumed command of his new force just as McClellan was retreating uh, from Lee's army across the Virginia Peninsula. His orders were mainly to guard the approaches to Washington, and he did that by deploying his army across a 40-mile wide patch of rolling river-cut Virginia foothills between the Potomac River and the Blue Ridge Mountains, roughly along the line of the Rappahannock River. However, as we saw in episode 30, Pope would not be allowed to sit and occupy territory. Jackson had made a lunge at him, attacking and defeating uh, Nathaniel Banks' corps in Culpeper. This attack had had startled both Pope and Halleck. Therefore, Union General McClellan, who was retreating ever so slowly back to Washington, had been ordered to join Pope and come to his rescue. Lee was planning a grand attack on the miscreant Pope, and if Lee was to be successful, he had better do so soon before McClellan arrived. So that's what he did. Lee went into action on August 11th. This started with sending Longstreet to join Jackson and face off against Pope. Lee had a total of 54,000 men in in the two corps formations and planned to isolate and destroy Pope's army of 50,000 men before McClellan could arrive to support him. Pope sensed that he was vulnerable and had actually positioned his army in a dangerous location, so he moved to the north bank of the Rappahannock River, at which time Lee moved his army to the south bank of the river to oppose him. Lee's Confederates under Jackson and Longstreet stood on the south side of the Rappahannock, while the Yankees under, uh, under Pope stared at him from across the river on the north side. Pope's poor, uh, corps commanders were Siegel, Reno, Heinzelman, McDowell, and Banks. A very high-stakes game of chess had begun. Lee had left Richmond virtually undefended, and his time was short. This is because McClellan's army of 100,000-plus was on its way to support Pope and could deal a hammer blow to Lee's army. The good news for Lee was that McClellan was never in a hurry to get anywhere, and especially if he he had been ordered to do so by Washington. Now, during this game of stare-down across the river, Lee set in motion a plan to cut off Pope's line of communication from Washington and to draw him into a fight. So to pry Pope out of his secure position across the Rappahannock, Lee proposed that Jackson and his entire corps of 24,000 men march in a sweeping arc around the Union right, climbing north across the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, then turning east through through the Bull Run Mountains and landing on the plains deep behind Union lines. His mission was to cut the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, which was Pope's main supply line and communications line with Washington. Now, while Jackson was doing all this, Longstreet's corps would stay in position across the river and demonstrate as if Lee's entire army was still there. Jackson was thrilled by this daring plan and by the opportunity to strike at the, at the Yankees deep behind enemy lines. So, on August the 25th of 1862, Jackson's men rose at 3 a.m. and started moving. As usual, not one of his men knew where they were going, and they didn't care. They knew Jackson well enough to know they were headed for a fight. 
They left all baggage behind and only brought with them their muskets, cartridge belts, and 60 rounds of ammo, and haversacks with three days' rations. They marched without stopping for rest. There could be no straggling, no removing of clothes or shoes to cross streams, and there had to be complete secrecy. On the first day, they marched 26 miles and finally rested miles behind the Yankees' right flank. The men halted and immediately went to sleep. Meanwhile, Longstreet's artillery back on the Rappahannock continued to demonstrate and convince Pope that all the rebels were still there in their front directly across the river. Eventually, Pope did receive intelligence from banks of all people that a large force was getting behind his army to the north and possibly headed to Washington. However, shockingly, Pope never sent his cavalry to investigate the matter. As we discussed in the last episode, faulty or perhaps even incompetent Union leadership was again working in Jackson's favor. Early on the second morning, Jackson's three divisions under Ewell, A.P. Hill, and Tolliver began moving again and turning east. They marched again all day without stopping, and by 4 p.m. on August the 26th, they reached Gainesville, Virginia, which was 20 miles to the rear of Pope's Union force. They were joined now by Jeb Stewart's cavalry, which had been sent there by Lee and, and to help screen their movements. Lee's batteries continued pounding away on the Rappahannock. And at 6 p.m., Jackson's men arrived at the rail line, which was supplying Pope's army from the north. They attacked Bristow Station to cut the rail line as a train was barreling by towards them. They tried to derail it, but failed, and the train continued, continued on its way. The next train wasn't so lucky. It hit the obstructions that Jackson's men had laid on the tracks, and it derailed. Cars screamed and engines hissed as the train went down an embankment. Cars piled on top of one another as a second train was arriving. Then it, too, smashed into the wreckage of the first train. Another train arrived, but it was able to stop and turn around and headed back to Warrenton to warn Pope of Jackson's presence in the rear. Then Jackson turned his attention to a very large Union supply depot at Manassas Junction, five miles closer to Washington. He sent Isaac Tremble's men in to take the supply depot. Tremble is the commander who had done such good work at Cross Keys in the Valley Campaign. He made quick work of taking the supply depot and the cache of supplies that was breathtaking to behold. More on this in a moment. Meanwhile, Lee had ordered Longstreet to head west and then north with his 30,000-man corps and follow the trail Jackson had taken to get behind the Union Army. Finally, Pope, with all the intel and data streaming in, realized that Longstreet's loud artillery demonstrations had indeed been a diversion and that Jackson's force was getting behind him, between him and Washington. However, Pope's response was not to see this as a threat. Instead, he saw what he, what he thought was an opportunity. Lee's army was strung out 
on a long arc from the Rappahannock just to the south, all the way around Pope's right flank, and more than 20 miles to his rear. He saw an opportunity to attack. By now, he was receiving reinforcements from Washington and from the Union Army returning from the uh, Virginia Peninsula. He now had about 60,000 men under his command, plus Halleck was, uh, had sent another 20,000 men to get there by boat and train as fast as they could. Jackson knew he was in a precarious uh, situation, but first he had to deal with an unimaginably large amount of Union supplies his men had uh, captured at Manassas Junction. After driving off some very determined Union attacks from forces sent down by Halleck, Jackson's men turned to the prize in front of them. The sheer tonnage of supplies they had captured was beyond anything seen in the war. So much was there they could not hope to possibly carry it back with them. The only question was, would the sober Stonewall Jackson turn his men loose? Well, he would and he did. According to historian S.C. Gwynn, what happened next was one of the great extended revels of the Civil War. Before them, in a hundred boxcars and in many sheds and warehouses, was a cornucopia of Union industrial and agricultural production. Pyramids of artillery ordnance, crates of new boots, shoes, underwear, and other clothing. Springfield muskets. There were also pickled oysters, canned fish, whole hams, oranges, lemons, potted lobster, mustard, wheels of cheese, still warm uh, field ovens surrounded by baked goods, canned fruit, cigars, and candy. The men lately deprived of rations and often wearing tattered shreds of rotting butternut homespun and sometimes without shoes, ran wild from boxcars to warehouses, stuffing their pockets and haversacks, taking whatever they could find. Some of their antics were comical. According to one observer, quote, When these half-starved men sang songs of merriment and danced around their campfires, eating lobster salad and drinking Rhine wine, the scene was ludicrous in the extreme, end quote. Meanwhile, Jackson would quickly need to decide what next. There were 15 divisions of Union troops bearing down on his three divisions. The lo- logical thing to do would be to backtrack to the Blue Ridge and head south to safety. But Jackson knew that Lee and Longstreet were on their way with another 30,000 men and would be there in about 24 hours. Jackson was indeed not thinking of escape, but instead was only thinking about how to smash John Pope. Jackson knew the terrain well from the first Battle of Bull Run, and he remembered there was an unfinished railroad line several hundred yards north of the Warrenton Turnpike. This offered a superb defensive position in which to bide his time and wait for Longstreet and Lee to arrive. On August 28th, Pope decided to attack Jackson back at Manassas Junction. He would once and for all surprise and take out the mighty Stonewall himself. However, his first units, when they arrived at Manassas Junction, they found nothing but smoldering ruins of what had been a mountain of supplies. At this point, uh, Pope became convinced Jackson was retreating east toward Centerville. 
But then he started issuing confusing orders to send units in all directions to try to find Jackson's 24,000 men. Meanwhile, Jackson waited all day behind the railroad cut with all of his men, while Pope's men whipsawed back and forth across a vast area to find him. Then Stonewall got news from a courier that Lee and Longstreet were only 12 hours away. It was about that time when uh, Irwin McDowell's Union Corps finally stumbled upon Jackson's men in their holding position, and the battle was on. Interestingly, the Yankee and Rebel units that faced each other at the beginning of the Battle of Second Bull Run were none other than the Iron Brigade against the Stonewall Brigade. The Iron Brigade was one of the few Yankee Western units uh, fighting in the Eastern Theater. They were from Indiana and Wisconsin and were distinguished by their attire. Dark blue frock coats, light blue pants, white leggings, and an outsized black hats with plumes. They were one of the hardest fighting units of the war, the northern equivalent to the Stonewall Brigade. Now these two opposing, opposing units were fighting each other toe-to-toe, neither side seeking shelter or retreating. Both sides fed units into the fight. They blasted away at each other, both maneuvering for each other's flanks. They were deadlocked after an hour and a half of fighting, and neither side could get an advantage. So finally, the Federals fell back, and the fighting ended for the day. All this time, Pope was eight miles to the east on Bull Run. Having heard the fighting in the distance, he became convinced that McDowell's corps had caught Jackson trying to flee into the Blue Ridge Mountains. He had no idea Jackson was actually stationary at the railroad cut, drawing him into a battle on his own terms, a battle that would become a trap for Pope. And rather than waiting for McClellan's force to arrive and provide reinforcements, Pope wrenched his entire force west to face Jackson and annihilate him. On the morning of August 29th, Pope attacked Jackson in force. Now, to set the stage, Jackson's 24,000 men in three divisions were aligned along a two-mile, two miles of unfinished railroad spur, which ran diagonal from southwest to northeast. This was just north of the Warrenton Turnpike, which was an east-west road. Pope's 50,000-man force, or now 60,000-man force, was arriving from, uh, from the east on the turnpike and turning to the north to face Jackson's men. The battle started with artillery barrages from both sides. Then Union General Franz Siegel sent skirmishers forward to probe for weak spots. Soon, the rattle of muskets from the Confederates meant they had found Jackson's main position, and the fight was on in earnest. What followed were many savage fights all along the two-mile line of Jackson's corps. This went on for four hours, with uh, Union forces making attacks and rebel forces repulsing them. During this time, Fitz John Porter's 10,000-man corps of Union reinforcements was arriving from McClellan's army. They were coming in from the south and were ordered to support Pope's attack on Jackson. 
Pope's plan was to hammer Jackson's men with frontal assaults, while Fitzjohn Porter's corps would sneak in from the south and cave in Jackson's right flank with a surprise attack. The only problem with Pope's plan was he forgot or somehow didn't know that Lee and Longstreet were coming in from the west to reinforce Jackson's right. However, Fitzjohn knew it, and he had no intention of running his 10,000 men headlong into Longstreet's 30,000 men. So he stayed where he was, south of the area, and waited for clarifying orders. Pope, meanwhile, expected Fitzjohn to attack and could not understand why he had not. This issue would be the subject of the most famous court-martial of the war. Fitzjohn Porter would be found guilty and removed from command. Not until long after the war were the charges overturned and Fitzjohn reinstated. Meanwhile, while this was happening, Longstreet's men had indeed arrived and assembled on Jackson's right flank. In fact, Jackson was, had carefully selected this position for Longstreet's corps and ordered Jeb Stuart's cavalry to guide them into place. Now the Army of Northern Virginia was assembled in the shape of a T-Rex's jaws. That is, if the animal could open its jaw wider than 90 degrees. The upper jaw was Jackson's Corps on the unfinished railroad cut, and the lower jaw was Longstreet's Corps positioned invisibly in the woods to the south. Stephen D. Lee's artillery would be positioned at the joint of the two jaws. This was a perfect trap for Pope, and he would walk right into it. At this point, Jackson was being hammered relentlessly by Union assaults, and Lee wanted to send Lee's men straight forward to attack. However, as we discussed in Longstreet's episodes, there was uh, this was not Longstreet. This is not what Longstreet wanted to do, and he was right. With Fifth John Porter's Union Corps lurking om- ominously to the south, Longstreet instead sent out a reconnaissance in force at sundown that smashed into a division of McDowell's Union Corps. Somehow, Pope took all this to mean that Jackson again was retreating. He gave no thought to Longstreet's corps, which was now on his left flank and ready to pounce. On the morning of the 30th, Lee decided to wait and see what Pope would do. What Pope did was again attack Jackson's position at about 3 p.m. Critically, though, he would finally get John Porter's men into action from the south against Jackson's right flank, as he had planned to do the previous day. This was a picture-perfect assault across open ground with flags streaming and musket barrels flashing. Strangely, this beautiful show was happening literally right in front of Jackson's 30,000 men as if they were not there at all. What followed was a desperate, furious combat, much of it conducted at close range. There There were several moments when it appeared Jackson's lines would break. Wave after wave of federal assaults crashed on the rebel positions, but they were thrown back with hand-to-hand combat. The Federals would then rally and would stage attack after attack. Finally, Lee and Longstreet realized that Fitzjohn's assaults on Jackson's right had failed. They knew it was finally time for Jackson's men to emerge from the trees and move against the Union left. 
The pivotal moment of the battle had arrived, in which the Confederates would, uh, would close the jaws of the T-Rex. Longstreet's entire line moved forward, led by John Bell Hood's Texans. For thirty minutes they plowed forward, demolishing everything in their path. The goal for the rebels was Henry Hill, the site of Jackson's historical stand thirteen months before. They planned to, to cut off Pope's retreat and bag the Union Army if possible. However, at about 6 p.m., Pope realized his cause was hopeless. Longstreet had destroyed the Union left, and it was only getting worse for him. His decision to retreat at this juncture probably saved his army from being cut off. Also, some heroic rearguard action by the Federals saved them from another headlong panicked flight similar to that of First Bull Run. At 8 p.m., Pope ordered a full retreat of all units to Centerville, and at 11 p.m., most of his army was safely across Bull Run and out of danger. Pope's army had taken a severe beating and was completely demoralized. Fortunately for them, more reinforcements from McClellan's army were arriving on the scene to help restore order. However, however it was not over yet. On September 1st, Jackson again slipped away and marched north and east around Pope's flank, trying again to cut him off. Pope anticipated this, however, and the following clash would be known as the Battle of Chantilly. It was a quick and violent affair in the driving rain that ended with a stalemate. Unfortunately for the Federals, it resulted in the loss of their remarkable Major General Phil Kearney. Kearney was the one-armed general who had comforted uh, Oliver Otis Howard when he lost his arm in the Seven Pines battle. The Battle of Chantilly was only an afterthought by the rebels, but it frightened Washington into desperate action, thinking the capital might be attacked. Secretary of War Stanton ordered the federal arsenal to be moved from Washington to New York, and he ordered a steamer to be held in readiness to allow the president to escape if needed. Halleck was on the verge of a breakdown and succumbed to a terrible case of hemorrhoids. Pope was soon out of command of the army, and McClellan would, would again be in charge, at least for a few months more. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please take a moment to rate, review, and share the podcast. Also, please send any comments or questions you, you might have to leadersof1865 at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join me next time for episode 32, where we will discuss the Maryland campaign. 